Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Record-breaking heat waves are becoming routine. How can cities prepare for potentially deadly temperatures? Heat waves are one of the deadliest disasters that we face, but often overlooked because it doesn't have that same sort of startling visual impact that a lot of other disasters have. We'll visit Lake Chad in the Sahel region of Africa, where a drought is fueling violent conflict. Ancestral land rights have been thrown into disarray. Herders and farmers are fighting each other over increasingly limited arable land. You have growing populations with bleak futures. And droughts or floods, heat waves or cold snaps, just how responsible is humanity for extreme weather events? We are able to create a sort of inventory of what are actually the impacts of man-made climate change today on the city scale, on the county scale, where decisions are made. Hello and welcome to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Catherine Braik, The Economist's Environment Editor, and this week we're coming to terms with a world of extremes. In recent days, heat waves have turned swathes of Europe, America and Japan into furnaces. We don't have to tell you that there's a heat wave gripping much of the country from Texas to temperatures the across the globe have put July on course to be the hottest month in recorded country, history. Scorched cities hitting a boiling point. Not just uncomfortable, it's been fatal. So far, it's blamed for at least six deaths. In France, temperatures peaked at 45.9 degrees Celsius at one point. In America, more than 100 million people were under excessive heat warnings. Heat is one of climate change's deadliest manifestations, but heat wave deaths are often overlooked and underplayed. And as overall temperatures rise, extremes of heat will become more frequent. How can cities prepare for the sweltering new normal? Julia Rigi is one of the lead authors of the Red Cross Climate Center's new heatwave guide for cities. Hello, Julie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We have heard a lot this week about how heatwaves can kill. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and why people maybe underestimate the impact of heatwaves on health? Heatwaves are one of the deadliest disasters that we face, but often overlooked. And I think a big part of overlooking it is because it doesn't have that same sort of startling visual impact that a lot of other disasters have, you know, floods, earthquakes, etc. They really rise to our attention very quickly in part because of the wider impacts that we see. Um, also with heatwave deaths, we often have a best sense of the number of people that have passed away due to a heatwave after the event occurs because it involves looking at sort of an average number of deaths for a particular time uh, period and then seeing what were the excess deaths that happened during the time of extreme heat. In terms of the groups that are vulnerable to extreme heat, there's actually quite a few groups, but those who are most vulnerable are older people, people with existing heart and lung conditions. Other groups, though, include people who work outdoors, 
infants, pregnant women, um, people who are homeless and may not have access to cooling spaces. And another group as well are people with lower income who may, in places where air conditioning is common, for example, they may have a unit in their house but may not feel comfortable using it because of the excess cost. It is also common that heat waves which occur early in a heat season can be more deadly because temperatures are sort of rising as you enter into a warm season. But as a you know, population in that area, you may not be used to the warmer temperatures yet because you're coming out of a colder season. So can you explain why it is that cities are so much more dangerous than rural areas during heat waves? That's really due to the urban heat island effect. So basically, as temperatures warm up, the built environment, concrete, um, for example, absorbs this heat and retains it longer. And so it doesn't cool off as much at night as it does in a rural area. And nighttime temperatures are really important for allowing the body to recuperate from the extreme heat during the day. And that poses a challenge given that more and more people are living in cities. What can be done to adapt urban areas to cope with these kinds of heat waves? There are absolutely measures we can take and those cut across different timescales, right? So in the short term, when a heat wave is imminent, it's looking at things like ensuring early warning systems are in place. Then you have the longer term urban planning measures as well. And this is really critical for us to think about in terms of retrofitting already built environment, but also in cities that are still growing. These include things like ensuring um, adequate numbers of green spaces. Green spaces tend to be cooler than the surrounding built environment, so they can be a refuge. But then also looking at their distribution throughout the city and making sure that people have close access to one. Other things can include painting roofs white. So if you do that, especially at a large enough scale, it will reflect some of this sun back out as well as the heat by extension and keeps buildings a bit cooler. Or even looking at passive building design to ensure the building itself is structured to ventilate heat out a bit better. In already existing buildings, it could be looking at how to restructure the internal layout so the hottest parts of the building can be avoided during the hottest times of the day. There's a variety of measures. These are a few of them. Um, But there are things we can do. I'm always struck by how low-tech they all seem. Do we really know that they have a significant enough impact? It's amazing, actually, how simple some of the actions are to prevent heat deaths. Just ensuring that you stay hydrated, um, drinking before you feel thirsty, ensuring that you have a few hours of the day at a minimum in a cooler environment really can save your life. So these really do reduce deaths. And we see that in cases, for example, Ahmedabad, India is one of the often cited cases where they had a very intense heat wave with thousands of people dying, and then they put in place a number of these heat action plan measures. And a few years later, a larger heat wave around India occurred, and their city had much fewer deaths than others, in part because of this early planning measures. Which places are most at risk here? Presumably, cities in rich countries are best placed to adapt because they have better resources? Well, I think... I would actually divide up the world in two different ways, and that is places that have historically had these heat risks and places that have not. And so um, what we see often is that places that have gone through an extreme heat wave where there's been a large loss of life, that's where we see the most action spurred to develop early warning systems, heat action plans, et cetera. And that does so far correspond with places that have a higher fluctuation in temperatures throughout the year. So Europe, for example, where you have winter and summer seasons. In other parts of the world where you have a warmer climate in general, there hasn't historically been that risk of heat extremes in the same way. And so places aren't as prepared, but it's because of this that we're we're facing a new trend. So that's where we need to take a lot of actions to be prepared before you have this large loss of life that we've seen in other places. And there are all of these measures that I've said, 
really can be done anywhere. There are great examples coming from Kampala where they're doing a city greening campaign. It's still in the early days, but their effort is to plant trees around the city to reduce the temperature of the city. These are the measures that can be applied anywhere, really. Um, it's just a matter of making sure that we try to increase the scale at which it's being done before individual places are affected by heat extremes. Now, you stress the importance of finding a cool space for even just a few hours a day. This cooling today still depends largely on air conditioning, but of course that consumes energy and therefore produces carbon emissions, and also each unit emits its own heat. Is there any way around this? It's really a tricky one because in the very short term, getting into a cool place is your best way to um, to reduce loss of lives, right? And air conditioning is one of the best ways to cool a place. At the same time, air conditioning emits heat itself and can also warm the environment if it's you know there at a large enough scale. And then it has this emissions impact as well. But yeah, it's an interesting challenge because you have this sort of dichotomy between um, immediate life-saving measures and then longer-term risk that you want to try and avoid. And that's where combined with some of these other strategies like centralized cooling centers, for example, passive building design, can at least help to reduce the temperature so you don't have to rely on air conditioning as much. And hopefully through research and development, there can be ways um, identified to have more energy efficient cooling strategies as well that can be done at a larger scale. Julia Rigi, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Climate change is affecting some regions more quickly and more dramatically than others. The Sahel is a huge strip of Africa just below the Sahara. It is warming one and a half times faster than the global average. For the last decade, the Lake Chad Basin has also been devastated by a war that spills across the borders of Chad, Nigeria, Niger and Cameroon and has displaced some two and a half million people. But the complex links between that conflict and the changing climate are only just beginning to be understood. Our West Africa correspondent, Will Brown, has been reporting from Lake Chad and joins me on the line now. Hello, Will. Hello. So, Will, 50 years ago, Lake Chad was the sixth largest freshwater lake in the world. You've been there recently. What does it look like now? Well, in the, in the 1960s, the, the lake was absolutely huge. Uh, it was kind of a, a miracle of the Sahel, breathing life into the region. The lake has shrunk dramatically. Uh, it's about half its original size, and this has had a devastating impact on millions of people living around the lake. Many communities have broken down because of the struggle for water and resources. And for the last 10 years, uh, there's been a bloody war going on across the Lake Chad Basin with the jihadist group Boko Haram and its offshoot, Islamic State in West Africa. I was recently in Chad. I was in Bagosola, a small market town near the Nigerian border. Now, I went to Bagosola because there are around 10,000 people there who have fled Boko Haram and communal violence. A lot of the land around the town used to be underwater. It was a sort of a, an oasis and herders would graze thousands of cattle across the land. 
but now for miles upon miles around all you can see is thick sand which used to be the lake bed it's swelteringly hot uh, there's barely any vegetation apart from uh, lots of these kind of uh, tough brittle sahelian trees filled with thorns and most of the cattle have died. Now the only animal life you really see is just a few goats and an odd camel. So, so between the threat of violence and the drought that has transformed the landscape, how are people managing to survive? So uh, most of the people I spoke to kind of spend their days just trying to shelter from the sun. They survive completely on what humanitarian N- uh, NGOs and organisations give them. I assume. I spoke to Yusuf Isa, who is 60 years old and is now living in Dar es Salaam refugee camp. He told me about how the shrinking of the lake has changed their lives. When he was young, how close was the village to the lake? The place is close to the river, but now it's hard. Was it difficult for his community when the lake started moving away? That time you you can give to somebody, but now somebody can give you. If you are potato, onion, cassava, as well on. And you sometimes you have you have more, you can sell some, you give some. So because of the lake, they are suffering nowhere to farm in, nowhere to catch fish, just they are suffering here. But these local environmental issues aren't just making farming and fishing more difficult. How does the shrinking of the lake play into the existing conflict in the region as well? It's an incredibly complicated conflict and it's very difficult to give a simple explanation. But the shrinking of the lake has had a, a, a catastrophic impact on many people's livelihoods. Um, ancestral land rights have been thrown into disarray. Herders and farmers are, are fighting each other over increasingly limited arable land. You have growing populations with bleak futures. Uh, many young men are seeing their families, who were once maybe quite well off, um, become destitute and go hungry. And then these jihadists or bandits come along and offer these men money, women, status, power. And you're stuck with this vicious cycle of violence. Right now, Boko Haram is seeing a resurgence across the Lake Chad Basin. Even the the pretty powerful, well-organized Chadian military uh, are struggling to cope. While I was in Bagasola, people were saying jihadists were operating just a few miles away from the town. And many of the people in the camps were too scared to walk a few miles back to their old homes. They see Boko Haram come attack them, some kill, some slaughter, some shot. That's why they flee. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Boko Haram took women, took children. They never took anyone. They never took anyone. They just yeah. killed people. Just killed people. Of course, no war is just caused by one factor alone. So, what are the other factors that are at play here? Well, sometimes ethnic tensions feed into the violence. Uh, For example, the Fulani ethnic group are widely discriminated against across the Sahel. Um, Recently, there's been a string of pogroms killing hundreds of Fulani in Mali and Burkina Faso. But look, I, I think what we're really seeing here is a failure and breakdown of some of these post-colonial states. 
Many elites are incredibly parasitic. They spend far too much time in London, Paris, or, or, or Geneva, and they leave very little money or social services for people on the periphery. Fundamentally, this violence spreading across the Sahel like wildfire, I think, is a result of a huge failure of governance. Will Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. Despite high-profile efforts to address both the shrinking of the lake and the security situation in the area, until recently, no one had established exactly how the two were connected. But last month, the G7-commissioned Lake Chad Risk Assessment presented its results. I spoke to Janani Vivekananda of Adelphi, the think tank that led the research, to find out how this new understanding could help rebuild peace around Lake Chad. And I began by asking her whether the environmental situation is likely to deteriorate. So our research found that whilst the lake certainly did shrink dramatically during the 70s and 80s, it is now stable and is in the southern pool. The lake is actually in a period of expansion. And further, we found that speaking to communities on the ground, it's not a shortage of water that they are predominantly struggling to cope with. It's the variability and the uncertainty in rainfall. The lake is dependent on rainfall. It's 90% rain-fed. And when people don't know when the rains come, they don't know when to switch from one livelihood option to another. And that's traditionally how people have always coped with with the changing seasons. So um, one thing that I'm still slightly well, intrigued by, is there seem to be differing opinions about the role that climate change actually played in this specific drought. The signal between climate change and the variability in rainfall that we're currently seeing is very strong. And whilst I can't speak to the historical drought, the current rainfall variability is very clearly linked to, to anthropogenic climate change. As Will has just explained, there are so many complex factors layering one on top of the other in the situation in Lake Chad. In what way does climate change actively exacerbate the conflict there? What Lake Chad shows us is that if you don't include climate change into your assessments, you are missing a whole host of risks. Firstly, that the conflict undermines people's ability to deal with the consequences of an increasingly variable climate, increased competition over less and less natural resources and kind of lower quality of natural resources. So the mixture of climate and conflict have disrupted previous uh, dispute resolution mechanisms to deal with these resource conflicts peacefully. And so we're seeing an increase in violence over natural resource disputes. As people's livelihoods become more and more stressed, um, the offer of armed opposition groups, food on the table every day, a sense of belonging, loans to get married, loans to start a small business, etc., uh, becomes more and more attractive. And finally, the fourth risk is not to do with climate change, but to do with the response to the conflict. Some of the stabilisation efforts in the region involve restricting access to certain parts of the lake shore, which is actually highly fertile, or some of the islands in the lake, fostering grievances towards the state that further uh, incentivize people to join armed groups and perpetuate the violence. So the report, as I understand it, was really seen as a case study to try to understand more global issues. What can we learn from Lake Chad when trying to understand and address conflicts in other regions that are also feeling the effects of climate change? The lessons from Lake Chad show us that it's not enough to include environmental impact 
in a conflict assessment, but so far there hasn't been a systematic inclusion of climate change actually looking forward, not just looking at historical climate change data, but actually looking at what the future holds. We did not anticipate the four risks that we identified at the beginning. And in fact, the literature on Lake Chad, because it hasn't been based on up-to-date climate and hydrological data, actually gets the diagnosis quite wrong. And so if you get the diagnosis wrong, you get an ill-informed treatment. And in a fragile context, getting the treatment wrong poses a huge risk of making the conflict even worse. So there's obviously a really complicated interplay happening here. At this stage, to what extent can we say that climate change is driving conflict? So I think it's really difficult to say that climate change leads to conflict as a sole driver, but it certainly contributes, and we're seeing this more and more on the ground. The academic literature is a little slower to catch up because it's it's tied up in this this need to prove causality, and with conflict, it's it's notoriously difficult um, to prove causality, any kind of causality. But what I can categorically say is that climate change inhibits or threatens peace. It's much harder to to see a path to peace as sustainable where climate change risks are playing out and they're not being governed or addressed in a way that doesn't further exacerbate some of the the root causes of conflict. Janani Vivekananda, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much. Good to talk. And finally, droughts and storms, heat waves and cold snaps, extreme weather events are becoming more common. For years, the official line was that no single weather event could be blamed on climate change, only trends. But that began to change in 2004 with the first so-called attribution study. This focused on the European heatwave of 2003, when average temperatures were the highest in 150 years of reporting. Since then, the field has advanced rapidly. Freddie Otto is part of the World Weather Attribution Project, a global collaboration between experts in this sort of analysis. And she joins me on the line now. Hello, Freddie. Hello. Um, Freddie, can you tell us a little bit about how attribution science works? What we want to know is, first of all, what is the likelihood of the event we are interested in to occur in the world we live in today? Because we know very well how many more greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere because of the burning of fossil fuels, we can remove these fossil fuels from the atmospheres in climate models. And that's how we can do these kind of experiments. Of course, we want to say not something just about model worlds, but we want to say something about the reality. So before we do this in the model worlds, we look at the observations of the type of event we are interested in. And we also need the observations to identify whether the models that we are using are actually fit for purpose. Okay, so ultimately, what you seem to be looking at is to what extent we can blame an extreme weather event on human greenhouse gas emissions. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, so we have looked at the heat wave in June this year, particularly at France and at the city of Toulouse. We found that the heat wave um, was in, in all of France was about a one in 30 year event in the world um, we live in today. And when we compared it to the world that might have been without man-made climate change, we found that the event was made at least five times more likely because of climate change. But what we also found is that in the observations, it was made at least 10 times more likely 
So it's not just climate change, but there are also other things like urbanization or land use change um, that, that play an important role. And with this method of attribution, we are trying to disentangle these different drivers that can cause changes in the likelihood and in intensity of extreme events to occur and find out which aspect of it is due to man-made climate change. Overall, the, these studies have been going on for some years now. Are you able to look at that cumulative effect and say what proportion of extreme weather events that have been studied show a, a human influence, the influence of climate change? In most of them, we did find that climate change made them more likely. But that is not saying that all extreme events that are happening or in the majority of extreme events that are happening, climate change is playing a major role because the events that have been attributed are really not representative of all the events that are happening today. There have been a huge amount of studies on European heat waves. There have been a lot of studies on, on UK winter storms, for example. But a lot of the events, and particularly the events that have caused huge losses and damages, particularly in, in developing countries, have not been attributed. There is only a relatively small number of, of scientists who do this kind of work, so it's not uh, operationalized yet. And also, while we have climate models that are relatively good at representing large-scale rainstorms and uh, larger-scale droughts and heat waves, we don't have climate models that are able to reliably simulate things like hailstorms or tropical cyclones and other very complex but often very damaging events. So what's the importance of these studies? Can they actually help us prepare for or even prevent future extreme weather events? The main importance is that we are able to, to create a sort of inventory of what are actually the impacts of man-made climate change today on the city scale, on the county scale, where decisions are made. We also do this for the future so that we can see, okay, if the likelihood of the event today is one in 30 years, what is it when we have two degree of global warming? And that then allows us to see, okay, which are the kinds of events where climate change really is a game changer? And that would ultimately allow you to use funds for adaptation in a more strategic way. Do you have any information now on that sort of balance? So precisely what you just said, which types of events um, do have a strong climate signal and we need to be preparing for? And if there are some types of events that, uh, that we don't need to be so concerned with? I think the kind of events that we really need to be concerned with, and even more so than we are, are heat waves, because heat waves are really increasing by orders of magnitude. In particular, for example, over the African continent, heat waves are often not even reported at all. So people don't even think about them, uh, that, that they might be an event to, to reckon with. They are, so that is definitely something that has not really been on the adaptation radar enough. Okay. And finally, what are the legal consequences of attribution? If causal links can be proven, should high emitters of carbon dioxide be held responsible for the damages done by natural disasters? Well, that, that's not really a, a question that science can answer if they should be held responsible. As a human being, I would say that is a very useful thing that one could 
try and use the legal sector for and use this science for because if we want to have a world that is only two degrees above pre-industrial and not the three or four degrees above pre-industrial, then we need now to change the way our global economy is acting. And the fossil fuel industry is a big part of that. And we haven't really asked them to change at all. And so um, if one could use the science so that that would lead to them having to change their business model, I think that is very promising. But this is, of course, not a scientific question. Fascinating. Thanks very much, Freddie. Uh, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. The climate blame game is only just beginning. Even if carbon emissions are eliminated this century, heat waves and other extreme weather events will continue to get worse for decades to come. And as the mercury rises, governments, rich and poor alike, must do more to protect their populations from the unavoidable effects of climate change. To read more about how climate change influences extreme weather and how the world can prepare for it, go to economist.com. If you're not already a subscriber, you can get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12 by visiting economist.com forward slash radio offer. And while you're with us, Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does make a difference. I'm Catherine Braik, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.